welcome everyone to another edition of Streaming Water Podcast. I'm your host, Blair Corning. And today we have Dr. Josh Goldman Torres and Tracy Fielder uh, here today to talk to us about an interesting project uh, involving wastewater as well as, as COVID. So this is this is a timely topic and it involves a lot of different fields and a lot of different uh, areas. So I'm, I'm glad to, to have you two on the show today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Blair. You bet. So maybe uh, first off, Dr. Goldman Torres, could you kind of give us, and then you, Tracy, after, kind of take us through your background or how you got to where you are, what you do now, and, and uh, even what you'd like to do outside of work. Great. Yeah, thanks, Blair. Um, yeah, so this is Josh. Um, you can just call me Josh. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, I uh, My background is uh, environmental engineering. I uh, got my degree from the University of New Mexico, um, and then I went to work at CDM Smith, which is a engineering consulting firm um, where I focus mostly on disinfection, but with a bent on data analytics. Um, I did that for about eight years um, and uh, Metro was actually one of my clients. Um, and about a year and a half ago, um, I came to work in their technology and innovation department, which is um, a really, really great department. Um, our job is to support um, operations and to um, do all the innovation at the district. So we're, we're, we're tasked with keeping up with all of the interesting um, developments in the industry, uh, running any pilot tests and implementing uh, any new technologies in the district. Nice. It sounds like a good spot to be. A lot of variety, a lot of cutting edge stuff really to, fun. to look at. Yeah. How about you, Tracy? Uh, what's, what's your story? Yeah, so um, I actually have a quite a different story than Josh. I uh, recently got my undergraduate degree at the Metropolitan State University of Denver. Um, don't have an engineering background, actually uh, got my degree in biology with a focus in microbiology and biochemistry. Um, I sort of due to the circumstances of COVID, I found myself in the uh, as an intern at Metro Wastewater, which I've been enjoying thoroughly. Um, COVID sort of shut down everything at the university where I was working at the time. And uh, I, with uh, Dr. Rebecca Farrell, we found out that we could be doing some biochemistry to test uh, COVID levels in the wastewater. And so uh, found our way to Metro Wastewater who we were working with and uh, we, started working together and uh, helped helped found this awesome collaborative that we're going to be talking about today. But I'm also really enjoying uh, helping out with engineering tasks, which are not my forte, but Josh has been an amazing helper and mentor in that regard and is very patient for my biological and non-engineering background. So I'm having a blast and learning so much. It's good to... Uh... It's good to have some of those life science, you know, biologists to balance out the engineers uh, sometimes, you know, it takes a lot of perspectives to, to get a good product, I think, sometimes. So that's good. What about hobbies? What do you what do you guys like to do outside of work? Well, I like um, I like to do a few good introverted converted things, usually for hobbies, like uh, something that I try to do a few times a week is take my dog for runs outside. And if I'm having an especially nice, quiet day, I'll do something like practice calligraphy or do a little bit of watercoloring. Cool. Yeah. My wife just did this deal where she uh, sent a picture of our dog to this lady 
this lady drew it. She's like an artist. And then she did a workshop where she painted the dog in watercolor, came out good. And then online, the lady artist showed you how to paint it. And yeah, it came out great. So anyway, that's just a little side note. I'm still amazed at how, how well it came out from, it was like a paint by number only with the, an actual drawing of your dog there. But how about you, awesome. Josh? <laughs> But um, I, I'm the parent of the young son. He's three years old. So I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, doesn't leave a whole lot of time for other things. But, um, you know, we're like an outside family. We like to go hiking and sledding and, uh, you know, nature walks. Um, my son's really into that. Um, I have a cat who I love. Um, I don't know if that's a hobby, but it is one of my joys. And uh, I'm kind of a nerd, you know, I do like, I dabble in programming and stuff like that um, on the side. So I'm really getting more and more into data analytics. Cool. Yeah, yeah really, you just had to say three-year-old and I, I get it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, okay, now it's time for the interesting question. So I sent this to you ahead of time, but uh, what word do you always mispronounce? That's uh, the interesting question for today, Josh. Is it, you got a word you always mispronounce? <laughs> you know, um, this is going to sound terrible, but I am really meticulous <laughs> about word pronunciation. And I usually will go online and figure out how to pronounce a word um, before I say it in public <laughs> if I don't know. <laughs> That's a good policy. I need to adopt that uh, a similar policy. I, sometimes I'll say things and I'm like, is that even a word? Is that, uh, is that right? How about you, Tracy? You got a word you always mispronounce? I do. Yeah. I say mischievous and I know that technically it should be mischievous, but I like the sound of mischievous. So I run with it. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> no, I love that. I always thought it was mischievous. I'm, uh, I yeah. think it's both. I think that's okay, Tracy. I think maybe okay. that's the British pronunciation. Oh, okay. we're, we're getting into British. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> the one I always, uh, the one I can't get figured out in my head is balsamic like the vinaigrette or is it bas balsamic or balsamic i don't know what it is my whenever it's i say balsamic. it's balsamic <laughs> yeah. i think i always say balsamic and then my wife's like it's not you're not even saying it right and i'm like well <laughs> i don't like salads anyway so i don't have to use it very often. <laughs> all right let's get to uh let's get to the topic at hand because i'm excited about this topic uh the colorado uh collaborative here so maybe uh josh can you can you give us a little background on what what the collaborative is and and uh how it was formed and, and what we're talking about here when i say collaborative so let's uh walk back to uh, march of 2020 um there's a company called uh, biobot which was a group of folks that came out of mit uh that uh, formed a company to measure constituents in wastewater they weren't originally focused on covid detection but when COVID became a problem, uh, they quickly pivoted to measuring uh, RNA concentrations in wastewater. Uh, they started a pro bono campaign to accept wastewater samples from utilities all over the United States. Um, and certain, uh, I, I think it was about eight uh, facilities within Colorado uh, joined this uh, campaign. And uh, the leader of the technology and innovation division at the time, Jim McQuarrie, uh, asked me to uh, asked me and the lab support specialist at Metro, Liz Worth, to get a call together with all of these different utilities and talk about the data that we were getting. And that was really the birth of uh, this group of people that were interested in understanding uh, 
uh, the levels of COVID RNA in, in wastewater in Colorado. Um, so we, we, we went along with the, with the pro bono campaign for a while, talked about our results, and then we quickly realized that um, this, the effort that was being done at BioBot just didn't have the resolution we needed for Colorado, and we needed to develop some internal resources. So we started bringing in um, universities, Metro State University, Colorado State University, um, and several other utilities within, within Colorado to develop a method to measure COVID uh, RNA and wastewater locally um, and, to, uh, and to do it here in the lab at, at a much quicker turnaround time. So BioBot was giving us data after two weeks and really to make this data useful, we needed it much quicker. So um, through April and May, we were developing this method and then we brought in uh, the Colorado Department of Public Health um, that's CDPHE, um, to see if we could get this uh, program funded. And uh, so they, we wrote a proposal, uh, they, they wrote a proposal to fund the program for a year to measure uh, wastewater at the influent of about 20 utilities um, for a year. And we did get that funding in June of 2020. And uh, the, the method development continued. Um, Tracy can talk more specifically about the methodology that she's the biologist, but I can tell you that we started sending our samples to CSU um, in August, and we started displaying uh, the dashboard with all of those results in, in late August. So right now we measure um, coronavirus RNA and wastewater twice a week at about 25 utilities uh, within Colorado, we cover uh, more than 50% of Colorado's population. Um, and then we correlate those results with um, the clinical results um, that match up to the sewer sheds of each of these facilities. So we can directly correlate whatever we're seeing in the wastewater with what we're seeing in the caseloads. Nice. You mentioned turnaround time there and, and the need for, for data, getting data quickly, which I can see, you know, getting it two weeks from, from when you, when it came through the pipe isn't sufficient. So I guess what's, what's the uh, turnaround time of the CSU group at when, you know, after someone flushes their toilet, how, how long does it take for CSU to, to generate a result from that data? Well, there's two parts to that question. So one is how long does it take, you know, for water to get to a facility after a toilet is flushed? And that's going to vary a little bit depending on which facility that you're talking about. Um, but generally within 24 hours at the very most. Um, and then we take we take a 24-hour a composite sample. So that means that as water is flowing into the wastewater, we take a little bit over, uh, over a 24-hour period so that we can get like the average concentration. And then it goes to the lab and I'll let Tracy pick it up from there. Yeah. And uh, some of the delay after that is that uh, we ship it to the lab, which um, we do overnight rapid shipping as fast as possible, but it still takes a little bit of time. And then once the samples are received, then they can pretty much be uh, processed the day of. And so the lab at CSU goes through all of the filtration concentrations and RNA extractions and then send that through the machine, which basically quantifies it. And they can do that all the day of and read results the next morning. Nice. Yeah, I'm still uh, amazed if you think of, of all the work that would go into to going out into a community and sampling for, 
for COVID from individuals and, and this process, you know, through the wastewater allows you to do that in a single sample and get the results back immediately, you know, pretty much immediately. I'm, I'm still, I'm still amazed at that. And I, I think that there's a, probably great value in that in, in this effort and, and in the future as well. Josh, can you take us through uh, who's involved in the collaborative? What, what you said it was uh, over 50% or 60% of the population of Colorado, did you say? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we, we actually have um, two, two separate labs. So we have um, a funded component of the program, and those are the people that were involved as the grant was being written. Um, and that, that's about 20 utilities. And then I think we've brought in about five or six utilities after that, that actually pay for their own samples through an outside company called GT Molecular. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, so there's, there's about 25 uh, utility partners. And then in addition to that, we have, we have calls uh, on a regular basis and uh, CDPHE is, is, uh, is involved as well as several other local public health agencies that are associated with the, the regions where the utilities are located. Nice. With uh, all that membership, diversity in membership, I mean, you got the state, you got the, the local treatment agencies, you got public health agencies. How long did this, how long did this thing take to, uh, to get together? Well, I mean, I think, you know, March was our first call, which was just the Biobot group. And by June, we had, you know, all of the original utilities, which was over 20. And then I think, you know, probably by August or September, the group was pretty much as large as it is now. Yeah, I know we participate in that group and, and it's, uh, it's been a whirlwind. I've been impressed with how, how quick when you have a common goal and people who know what they're doing, it can come together. So good work on that. Yeah, I mean, I really want to talk, Blair, a little bit about why this data is so important um, and what and you know how it's being used and, and what we're doing with it. Yeah, that'd be great. Why don't uh, why don't we do just that? What what does this what does happen to the data once once you get it? Yeah, so um, this is we've worked really hard on streamlining this process. Um, when the labs uh, generate their data, they upload a spreadsheet to uh, a network drive, and that is automatically published to um, an internal dashboard, which uh, does does several things. So um, this dashboard is accessible through all of the partners that are um, associated with the collaborative. So you know that's the utility partner, CDPAG, um, and uh, and all the local public health utilities. And what we are agencies, and what we can see is um, pretty much all the information that we can get from these samples, which it starts out just by being the concentration of RNA per liter um, in the wastewater sample. But we do lots of math on it to try and figure out what it really means. So the first thing we do is, like I said, correlate it with the population that's associated with that wastewater sample. So we've generated these maps to show what population um, uh, contributes to each wastewater facility. And then based on census tract data, um, um, other public data sources, we've, we've assigned the, the caseloads associated with those people using a weighted average system. So now we know for that particular sewer shed, 
what the level of RNA is in the wastewater and what the clinical caseload is on any particular day. And we look at those trends over time. And what we try and figure out is how do they correlate? Do, are we getting advanced warning from this wastewater data before we're seeing it in the caseload numbers? And so we, we, uh, we, we do some statistics um, to compare those data sets and figure out um, what time shift gives us the best correlation. So that's one of the things we do. Um, Tracy, do you wanna talk about some of the normalizations that are done on the data? Yeah, certainly. Um, so we, uh, we're actually measuring a few things when we process these samples. Of course, one of the things that we look for the most important things is the uh, amount of like coronavirus RNA that there is in the wastewater. And so, of course, the, the easiest calculation that we do is the copies of coronavirus RNA per liter of wastewater. But we also measure a few other things. One of them is that before we process the samples, we put a little bit of a uh, bovine coronavirus vaccine inside the wastewater tube. And so this is just something that you buy at your veterinary supply store. And what we then do is we process it. We also extract the bovine coronavirus RNA since that's the kind of vaccine it is. And then we, um, we measure that as well. And what that does is it sort of gives us an idea of what percent of the RNA we actually manage to extract. In a perfect world, it would be 100%, but in reality, it's uh, usually quite a bit less than 50%. So that's a good metric. And so one of the things that we measure is the uh, adjusted copies of coronavirus per liter, which we do that uh, by the determining the percent that we are expecting to get based on this, coronavi uh, this bovine coronavirus spike. And then we calculate uh, adjusted copies per liter. Another thing that we do is... Um, we're, we try to sort of control the amount of coronavirus we get per amount of feces, which is estimated by looking at um, this RNA that comes from uh, F-positive bacteriophage. And what that is, is it's a virus that uh, basically attacks and infects a specific kind of bacteria that's found in the human gut. So when people pass feces, they're usually passing that particular virus as well, that F plus bacteriophage. And so we take the amount of copies of coronavirus per liter, and then we take the ratio of that to the amount of F plus bacteriophage. And we're sort of guessing that on a population level, that's sort of controlling how much coronavirus do we get um, in regards to how much feces we're getting. Right. And part of the reason for that is because lots of other things vary when you have a wastewater influent. You can have dilution um, because, you know, of infiltration or, you know, for other reasons, you can have um, uh, industrial flow that can dilute. So you're not going to see, you'll see more water, but you won't see the, a corresponding increase in coronavirus from an industrial source. So we use that F positive bacteriophage RNA to try and figure out how much feces we're actually getting, like Tracy said. You know, it sounds like you're, I don't want to say making it up on the go, but I mean, this is a new field. And, and even with the data, you know, how to, how to analyze the data, how to test the samples, it seems like since this is so cutting edge, you know, it, it's 
being developed as you go along? Has, how has that uh, whole process been for you to be, uh, to be leading in, in this, which is pretty new and uh, innovative field? Well, it's really fun for one, but also it, uh, it definitely requires a whole lot of critical thinking. Like I just talked about the F plus bacteriophage. Well, a lot of groups that are doing this sort of thing around the country, they actually came up with uh, different controls. And so the collaborative is a little bit of an outlier in that sense, because when we were first thinking about this, which was before even BioBot implemented a control like this, uh, F plus was the first thing that that came to mind as a good answer. But as it turns out, a lot of other groups use different controls. Like one of them is uh, pep uh, pepper mild, pepper mild modeled mosaic virus. Talk about words you can't pronounce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, that one actually measures a virus that's in plants. And so whenever people eat peppers of any sort, then in their stool they pass this virus. And so on a population level, that's a really good way to control for the amount of feces that you're getting. Huh. And so we're constantly thinking on our feet of ways to anticipate problems that we have and come up with solutions. And even though we try to collaborate with other groups outside of the collaborative to sort of figure out what people are doing, um, sometimes we just got to think of answers to our problems as we're going and we don't really have any good uh any good papers or journal articles to reference to give us a guiding light, if you will. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you went with that F plus because that is uh, coincidentally my undergraduate grade point average. So it makes <laughs> sense to me. <laughs> I mean, right. one of the things we're doing is we're just doing as much as we can because we really don't know, you know, what the eventual answer is going to be, what's going to be the best uh, normalization to make the data, uh, you know, most useful. Um, and so we do, we do more rather than less. Um, and, uh, and, and we, we publish, uh, you know, this, this highly technical data to our internal group. And then um, the more general data, you know, the RNA uh, copies per liter, which is kind of the standard uh, measurement that most, uh, you know, anyone that's measuring that measuring these is, is doing that at least. Um, we published that to uh, a, a public dashboard. Actually, CDPHE is the data owner, and they they take that data and publish it. So it's available to any listener uh, to see um, on the CDPH website, uh, CDPHE website, the coronavirus copies per liter um, compared to the caseloads for all of the sewer sheds that uh, we're measuring. Nice, yeah, and I imagine you know from what I what I understand about this this type of testing is, is, is a, more of the trends, you know, of trending when it's high, when there's spikes, when there's, there's flare-ups in certain areas, rather than trying to hit what's the exact number, because, you know, at the end of the day, nobody cares about how many, you know, millions of copies per liter. It's, you know, our cases going up, cases going down. Is that right? That, that's very true. And, and we have, if, if you look um, on the CDPH website, there's a lot of caveats there and they'll, they'll, they'll say a couple of really important things. One, there's not a direct one-to-one -one correlation between the amount of RNA in the wastewater and the number of cases of uh, really all that, all that can be compared is trends. So like you said, is it going up? Is it going down? And the other thing is that uh, this is highly specific to, uh, a, you know, whatever, watershed or sewer shed that you're looking at. So you can't compare 
copies per liter from one sewer shed to another. Um, so really they just can be compared uh, within, not among. So are you finding uh, that the public health agencies and the state health department are, are using this data? Are they excited uh, to get this data and are they incorporating it into their public health decisions? They've been very enthusiastic about this data. There's um, been a great engagement uh, from CDPHE and the local health agencies. Um, we don't have a lot of specific information. I mean, it, it's a it's a tool in their tool belt. I don't, um, and I think it's it's really it just it's very situation specific on exactly how it's used. But I can tell you that they look at it on a daily basis. Um, that's, uh, there, there's several people that are assigned specifically to that task at CDPHE to keep track of this data and to, uh, make sure that it's, um, brought to the attention of the, of the people making decisions. Good. All right. Well, I think, uh, it's time for the mid show segment here. And maybe it's a little past the mid show segment, but, uh, but we'll give it a go here. The mid-show segment today is about, and you've probably seen this uh, kind of computer-generated image of the coronavirus with the gray, you know, uh, the gray with the red spikes sticking out. You've probably seen that because it's in the news, uh, you know, kind of as a stock photo when we talk about coronavirus. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. So I want to talk today about uh, who created that. So this is an article from CNN by Malika Kalingal, and it's Meet the Illustrators Who Gave the Coronavirus Its Face. So I'll just read a little little parts of this article because I found it uh, pretty interesting. You know, when we think of coronavirus, we think of that picture, but that picture was just generated by scientists and, and graphic artists. It, it really looks nothing like that, you know, but uh, or it might look somewhat like that, but that's just uh, their take on what it what it could look like. But anyway, uh, when medical illustrators Alyssa Eckert and Dan Higgins at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention started working on an illustration of the novel coronavirus, little did they realize it would be the image people around the country and the world would see every day during the pandemic. After the CDC's Emergency Operations Center was activated in late January, Eckert and Higgins were told they needed to get an image of the virus out to the public. They sprang into action immediately, starting by researching the structure of the virus and consulting with subject matter experts in the lab at CDC, Eckert said. Uh, using the research of the protein data bank of the virus, we were able to compile the necessary data to construct the viral structure in a 3D environment, Higgins said. We downloaded this data into visualization software, took the parts we needed, optimized them, and then took them into 3D software. Using 3D software, they tested different lighting materials and colors. After choosing those effects, they gave the illustration a final polishing. Uh, once approved, the CDC illustration was released to the public. The whole process took about a week. Uh, one of the key things Eckert and Higgins had to keep in mind was to use colors that would communicate the gravity of the situation to the public. Um, and then they say, we didn't, we didn't want it to be too playful, but we didn't want it to be scary either. We also wanted the structure to have a realistic feel to it, Eckert said. Besides making sure the image was realistic, they needed to ensure the public would understand that coronavirus is affecting everyone's communities. In short, they had to bring it to life. And then they said, creating it was with lifelike textures that make you feel like you can touch it, brings it closer to reality. It is a way to take something complex and abstract and make it tangible. We gave the virus a face, they both chimed in. Uh, but both Eckert and Higgins say the coronavirus has changed their lives like everyone else. 
they're both working from home on illustrations. So anyway, that's a little bit, which I thought was interesting and how that uh, picture we always see of the coronavirus uh, came to life. But um, maybe we should carry on here. We've got a little more time. What, what questions haven't I asked uh, either of you, Josh or Tracy, that, that you uh, would have wanted me to here? I think we were going to talk a little bit, Blair, about where we see the collaborative going in the future. Um, and so I'm going to, I'll talk a little bit about that and I'll, yeah. I'll let Tracy uh, uh, go forward on some of the more uh, data, uh, data analysis or not data analysis, but laboratory analysis uh, part of it. So um, we, we continue to make um, updates to the dashboard to try and make the data more useful and to try and accept uh, different types of data um, and, and help people understand where the data is coming from. So um, uh, we're, we're, we're already pretty far into the development of the dashboard. We think it's in a pretty good spot, but there's, you know, a few things here and there that we're adding in. One of the, one of the exciting things is we are starting to um, develop in the laboratory a method to detect the mutations in the virus that are responsible for increased transmissivity. Um, and I'm sure you've heard about these different variants around the world. Yeah, the UK and the, uh, the Australian. Uh, Austra one. Yeah, yep. right. So you can detect those now, or you're, you're working well, on that. I'll, I'll, I'll let Tracy talk about the specifics of that. But um, on the data side, you know, the dashboard is is sort of ready uh, when when that data is available to be able to display that data as sort of a, a percentage of the total coronavirus that's detected. So um, we're looking for that in the future. Um, and uh, that's, that's really the next big thing on the dashboard front, but there are several um, data um, analysis or lab analysis type um, future initiatives that I'll let Tracy discuss. Sounds good. Yeah. So um, yeah, th again, this goes back into the topic where we're sort of, uh, we're sort of in new horizons and figuring out how to approach problems that are approaching. Um, and one of those is the uh, UK variant that we're all a bit worried about because it uh, it's really good at spreading. It's way better than our regular run-of-the-mill coronavirus. And so one of the things that we did uh, at the start of the new year is we sort of scrambled to put together a new assay to put in this collaborative to look for the UK variant, um, which was novel work. Uh, in our case, we got a lot of help from GT Molecular, but also our CSUs doing their own work on looking for different markers. And so what we're doing basically is we're looking for the specific point in the RNA where that mutation happens. And in the case of the UK variant, there's one mutation that we're especially worried about because that's what we think is the mutation that makes it so much easier for this virus to spread from one person to another. And so if enough people in the population have this variant, well, they're going to pass it in their stool. That's going to come to us. And so we're sort of, uh, we're putting together a really nice way to look for this mutation that way, let's say, for instance, uh, town A gets a really big spike in it that the that our Department of Public Health didn't know about. Well, we can give them a quick email and say, hey, guys, you might want to start looking in this area because we think that this extra contagious uh, coronavirus strain is really uh, is really taking over in town A. Other things that we're 
working on too is uh, we're sort of trying to stay on top of all of these uh, all of these mutations that we might be worried about. So for now, we're just sort of keeping our eyes open for other variants or mutations that we'd be concerned with. Um, we haven't seen it yet, but we one of those big concerns would be a virus strain that is more a little more resistant to the vaccines that are coming out. So we're really keeping our eyes open for that. Another another um, initiative that we're working on is um, a program to allow utilities to get a little bit more granular with their testing. Um, so we call it micro sewer shed analysis. So right now, you know, we're testing at the influence of these facilities. Um, but we we are we 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 just uh, published a guidance document uh, to help utilities develop a plan to test. Um, portions of their sewer sheds or micro sewer sheds to trace back any spikes that they might find. So some of our sewer sheds are rather large. And um, for, for, for various reasons, we, we might want to see where that spike is actually coming from. Um, it may be because um, we're, we're trying to determine if there's a, a certain area, population area that's not getting served, um, an underserved area, or, you know, for, for whatever reason, uh, this will make it possible to further trace back a spike to a specific area so that action can be taken there. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, going up the pipe a little further and looking at, at specific areas, I've even heard, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at CSU, they, they did individual dorms and, and tested dorm rooms, or not dorm rooms, but individual dorms for, for levels. Yes. Yeah, and they've been very successful in uh, in finding outbreaks before they happen and preventing uh, major COVID outbreaks in Fort Collins. Yeah, it seems like a great tool for kind of a pooled sample of a, you know, a certain building or certain area to, to give us quickly the data that we need. So that's good. What about, uh, you know, I've always thought you know, this whole field is kind of developing in front of our eyes as wastewater-based epidemiology. Uh, do you think this effort will lead to, you know, I always think maybe the utility of the future has a, a public health agency satellite office at the facility looking for different markers and, and viruses. What's your take on, on the future mm -hmm. of this? Hopefully we get uh, this coronavirus uh, pandemic ends at some point, but, but what do you see for the future of this whole field? Well, um, I, I should say that um, other countries can be, uh, have, have been a little bit ahead of the U.S. Uh, in terms of wastewater-based epidemiology. Um, some, I, I didn't mention this uh, in the beginning, but in Israel, they actually prevented a polio, epi polio epidemic in 2014 through the same type of wastewater-based uh, epidemiology testing. So just looking at influence to different wastewater facilities, they were able to detect the polio virus and then prevent an outbreak of it. So um, I think that, you know, in the last 20 years, we've been really focused in, in our industry on recovering resources, you know, recovering water, recovering energy, recovering nutrients, um, and, and really information um, in general is, is the next frontier. Um, in terms of, of, of wastewater treatment, uh, we, we're, we're learning that we can get a lot of information about our communities um, from looking at our wastewater. And it's not just about viruses, but it can be uh, metabolites of, of different drugs, you know, either prescription or non-prescription drugs, 
um, different disease indicators. Um, there's a lot of information that can be found in wastewater. And I think that's the next frontier. Yeah, it probably leads to a lot of, uh, you know, the further up the pipe and the more specific uh, things you're looking for probably leads to a lot of ethical issues and, and who, who can see the data, how, how far up the pipe can you, can you go to look at the data? And so I think, are those things uh, having to be sorted out as you go through this? I think there's going to be a lot of questions like that um, that we're going to have to deal with as a community to decide at what level uh, do we want to take this and, uh, you know, who owns this information and how it's going to be used. So, yeah, yeah. these are um, really interesting questions that I expect to be discussed at um, our big uh, conferences in the next few years. Yeah, I imagine. Tracy, did you have, you have something to add? Yeah, um, just uh, to piggyback on what Josh said, there's a whole lot of potential for where we can move in the future. Um, there to put a short list of things that we could probably measure in the future. Um, one of them is influenza, where sometimes that shed and stool, and then also opiates. So opiate use could be tracked as well as uh, hepatitis to put a short list down. And for privacy, um, there some of some of the few groups that were doing wastewater-based epidemiology before COVID hit, uh, they were really focusing on uh, tracking opiates and other drugs in the system. One of the big national leaders on that is in Tempe, Arizona, where they actually had a really good uh, opiate monitoring program, and they put a lot of thought and effort into how do we share this data. Um, who do we share it with? What's sort of our ethos behind it? And they had a really big, uh, a really big push to have a good relationship with their community to use this information for good for for public health rather than for um, punishment or monitoring. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, uh, nobody likes Big Brother looking up their sewer pipe, but uh, there is a <laughs> lot of a lot of good info that can come out of this. Sounds like for COVID now and and into the future. So thanks for. Uh, Thanks for talking to me about this. This is this is very interesting, and and I'm glad that uh, Dr. Goldman Torres and, and Tracy, you were able to to be on today to share your your knowledge of this topic. It's been great. So thanks. Thank you, Blair. I mean, I, I love discussing this stuff. I think it's really interesting and a great topic. So thanks for having me. Sure. Um, are you guys ready for the quiz? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right i don't know you guys can take these together yeah you guys can team up so these should be uh, easy this is an rna quiz um mm. because tracy mentioned the rna is what you're analyzing there so that means the answers to uh, all these will either start with an r an n or an a <laughs> all right so uh, all right number one uh which band got its name from taking the first letter of each band member's name? Is it A, Devo, B, ACDC, C, Kiss, or D, ABBA? Which band got its name from taking the first letter of each band member's name? Mm -hmm. You guys can discuss amongst yourselves and, and give me an answer. Well, I don't, I don't think it's Kiss, because that doesn't start with an R, an N, or an N. I was thinking See, the exact same thing. That's why you're a PhD. That's why you're a PhD. <laughs> I doubt it's ACDC because that's 
too that would be too convenient, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. So we have Abba and Devo left. Yeah. yeah. I mm. would guess Abba might be my first guess, but I could be very wrong about that. I because think that how makes... many names start with E and O and V? Right. Because they, right. they definitely happen, but they're less common name starters yeah. than A's and B's. I like I like that logic, Tracy. I'm I'm willing to go with that. All right. Okay. You, you locking in ABBA, Tracy? I think so. Yeah. All right. You are correct. Yay. It is ABBA. <laughs> Very good, man. You, this is the most deductive reasoning I've seen on this show. <laughs> Usually people just guess. All right. Uh, number two. What are the dying words of Charles Foster Kane in Citizen Kane? The movie Citizen Kane. What are the dying words? Are they A, nevermore, B, angels, C, rosebud, or D, night? Oh, I never gosh, saw I that one, but I more, thought that it was I, rosebud. The rosebud. I don't, I've seen that movie, but it's been a long time. Hmm. It's gonna be. I think it's either Nevermore or Rosebud. But what would Rosebud mean? I I I don't know. I know <laughs> that Rosebud is the dying word of one of these famous movies, and I thought that it was okay. Citizen Kane. All right, let's but, do yeah. it. Let's do it. All right, lock it in, Rosebud. All let's right, do it. You are correct. All it right. is Rosebud. I think Rosebud was a. Uh, the name of his sled when he was a kid or printed on his sled or something. I don't know. Very good. Okay. You are two for two. This is impressive. Number three, Fran Drescher starred in this 1990 television sitcom as a character with this occupation. And this is a multiple choice. You just got to come up with it. What occupation was Fran Drescher in her She's a nanny. Is that your final answer? Right, Tracy? I wasn't alive then. So okay, that's this is all you, bud. I was alive. She was definitely a nanny and she wore high heels every day. You got it. You yeah. got it. <laughs> you not only got the nanny, you got her footwear. That's extra bonus points. <laughs> so, congratulations, Tracy and Josh. You are three for three. You have successfully mastered the end of show quiz. Uh, thanks again <laughs> for being on the show. It has been great for our listeners. Um, thanks for listening and, and for tuning in. If you have suggestions for the podcast, send them to me at streamingwater at mail.com. Uh, we'd also, if you like the show, tell a friend, tell a colleague, because uh, we don't have an advertising budget. So word of mouth is all we have. So if you like the show, let someone else know so they can start listening. Thanks to the Colorado Wastewater Utility Council and Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association for co-sponsoring the show and we'll see you next time on the Streaming Water Podcast. Thanks again, Tracy. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Thanks so much, Blake.